Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. This is going to be Mosiah chapter 7. Uh, before I get into this one, I just want to make a mention here about the next few chapters of Mosiah is mostly historical. There's not very much doctrine in these uh, next few chapters. Um, and so this is mostly going to be historical in nature. But there are some interesting things. As we know, throughout the scriptures, there are individuals who have been types of Jesus, types of Christ. We know that Melchizedek, for example, was the Prince of Peace and the King of Righteousness, very similar to Jesus. Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, lots of similarities between him and Christ. Isaac, Boaz, Joshua, Isaiah, Jonah, and the Good Samaritan are all types of Christ that we have in the scriptures. And so let's talk about Mosiah here and some of the things that might be symbolic or similar to, to Mosiah and the Savior. The meaning of the name Mosiah, uh, as an example, in 1965, John Sawyer published an article titled, What Was a Mosaic? He argues that the term Mosiah was an ancient Hebrew term like Goel, which is redeemer or avenger of blood, or Sedek, meaning victor or savior. Such terms originally had meaning in Hebrew daily life and culture, but came to be used among their titles for God. The word Mosaic, pronounced Moshiach, spelled M-O-S-I-A-C, pronounced Moshiach, is a word peculiar to Hebrew, a word invariably implying a champion of justice in a situation of controversy, battle, or oppression. Sawyer's analysis sheds interesting light on the name Mosiah in the Book of Mormon. Several subtle reasons show why Nephites, who continued to speak Hebrew in the New World, would have been attracted to the use of such a name or title. Apparently, the form of the word Mosiah is a hipfil, a hipfil particle in Hebrew. I'm not even sure what that means. It occurs in the Hebrew in Deuteronomy 22, Judges 12, Psalms 18, and Isaiah 5, texts that in all probability were on the plates of brass. This word, however, was not transliterated into the English by the King James translators, and thus the Hebrew would not have been known to Joseph Smith. It was, however, known and used as a personal name in the Book of Mormon, as well as by people in the Jewish colony at Elephantine in the 5th century B.C., the key meaning of the word Moshiach was Savior. People in danger cry out, but there is no Moshiach. That's from Deuteronomy 22:27. After examining all occurrences of this term in the Hebrew Bible, Sawyer concludes that the term applied to a particular kind of person or role and was sometimes a title designating a definite office or position. Typical of this office are the following traits. One, the Moshiach is a victorious hero appointed by God. Number two, he liberates a chosen people from oppression, controversy, and injustice after they cry out for help. Three, their deliverer is usually accomplished by means their deliverance is usually accomplished by means of a nonviolent escape or negotiation. Four, the immediate result of the coming of a Moshiach was escape from injustice and a return to a state of justice where each man possesses his rightful property. Five. On a larger scale, final victory means the coming of, a, of Moshiach, which is plural, pronounced Moshiach, I just said that, to rule like judges over Israel. 
Thus, the term also had judicial, legal, or forensic connotations similar to the word advocate. A Moshiach gives refuge to those on his right hand from their accusers in court. And that was by John Welch. The book of Mosiah contrasts the characters of Benjamin and Noah on at least seven points. Now, as we know, we've, we've just talked about King uh, Benjamin in the Book of Mormon, and we're also now going to call uh, or talk later on about um, about King Noah. And so the transit or the uh, contrast between these two are very significant. First of all, their treatment of and attitude toward temples, their handling of conflicts with the Lamanites, their methods of succession, their use of and reaction to sermons, and their attitudes toward physical labor and service, the written word and the living prophets. These contrasts give life to our understanding of the principle of dominion. For the ancients, character and personality were best seen in a person's deeds. Mormon followed this ancient philosophy in portraying the deeds of the two Nephite kings, Benjamin and Noah. But the deaths of the two monarchs also characterized their lives. Benjamin peacefully passed the kingdom to his son, retired from the kingship, and spent the last three years of mortality in peace. His obedience secured him a place in God's kingdom. On the other hand, Noah, who spent his life on the lusts and desires of the flesh, pronounced a death sentence on the one messenger who could have saved him from destruction. His cruel treatment of Abinadi became his own death sentence. Though his desire for power and dominion consumed his soul long before the physical flames ever touched his body. How fitting it is that Noah was consumed in flames of his own making. Mormon's graphic account of the two contrasting leaders makes the Book of Moshiach, I'm sorry, Book of Mosiah, vital reading for anyone who would aspire to lead others or who is called to lead others in the latter days. Mosiah too also recognized the great value of studying these two kings and concluded the Book of Mosiah with a one chapter summary of the lessons we should learn from them. Those who have dominion either follow the messianic model of leadership by service exemplified by Benjamin, or the satanic model of leadership by domination exemplified by Noah. Leadership by service builds Zion, while leadership by domination builds Babylon. And that was from Monty Nyman and Charles Tate. All right, let's uh, go into the chapter here. Um, Let's see here. These were led by strong men. Okay, so Zenith is mentioned back in Omni, in the book of Omni. Uh, he's the father of uh, Noah. Um, and so uh, Zenith takes a group of people from their new home of Zarahemel back to the land of Nephi. Apparently his memory was that the grass was greener in the, in the land of Nephi. After a violent contention along the way, the party turned back and only 50 survived. On a second attempt, Zenith and his followers were successful in settling in the land of Nephi. They become the people of King Noah and King Limhi, who are eventually forced into slavery to the Lamanites. So their entire story now is, is we uh, will we'll begin in chapter 9 of Mosiah. So let's go to chapter 7, Mosiah chapter 7. Verse 1, and now it came to pass that after King Mosiah had had continual peace for the space of three years, he was desirous to know concerning the people who went up to, the, to dwell in the land of Lehi-Nephi or, or in the city of Lehi-Nephi, for his people had heard nothing from them from the time they left the land of Zarahemla. Therefore, they wearied him with their teasings. Now, again, it's interesting that when we say went up, we're talking about going up in altitude because they're actually traveling in a southerly direction. Um, Toward Lehi Nephi. Verse 2 And it came to pass that King Mosiah granted that 16 of their strong men might go up to the land of Lehi Nephi to inquire concerning their brethren. And it came to pass that on the morrow they started to go up, having with them one Ammon. Now, this is not the same Ammon that's uh, 
the son of Mosiah, this is a different Ammon, this is the first Ammon. He being a strong and mighty man and a descendant of Zarahemla, and he was also their leader. Remember, the Zarahemla people were from the tribe of Judah. They were the Mulekites. Uh, the other Ammon is not from uh, the tribe of Judah. He's from the Nephites. Verse 4, Now they knew not the course they should travel in the wilderness to go up to the land of Lehi Nephi. Therefore they wandered many days in the wilderness. Even 40 days did they wander. Although this small band wandered for a total of 40 days, the distance between the city of Zarahemla and the city of Lehi Nephi could be traveled in 20 days. This is how long it took Alma and his people to make the trek when we get to Mosiah 23. Verse 5, And when they had wandered 40 days, they came to a hill. Uh, it must have been pretty flat land if the hill is noted here, which is south, which is north of the land Shalom. In Semitic language, Shalom means the land of the to the east. When you are facing south, it can also mean secure or safe. And there they pitched their tents. And Ammon took three of his brethren, and their names were Amalekai, Helam, and Ham, and they went down into the land of Nephi. And behold, they met the king. Ammon and the four did this on purpose. They recognized them as the people they were looking for. Brant Gardner suggests that Ammon may have asked people of small villages in the area of their travels where the city was located. Continuing verse 7, of the people who were in the land of Nephi and in the land of Shalom, and they were surrounded by the king's guard and were taken and were bound and were committed to prison. Limhi thought that Ammon and his brethren were the priests of Noah. And so we'll get caught up with that story later on. Verse 8, and it came to pass when they had been in prison two days, they were again brought before the king and their bands were loosed and they stood before the king and were permitted or rather commanded, um, probably an insert by Mormon there, right? That they should answer the questions which he should ask them. And he said unto them, behold, I am Limhi, the son of Noah, who was the son of Zenith, who came up out of the land of Zarahemla to inherit this land, which was the land of their fathers, who was made a king by the voice of the people. And now I desire to know the cause whereby ye were so bold as to come near the walls of the city, when I myself was with my guards without the gate. And now for this cause have I suffered that ye should be preserved, that I might inquire of you, or else I should have caused that my guards should have put you to death. Ye are permitted to speak. And now when Ammon saw that he was permitted to speak, he went forth and bowed himself before the king. And rising again, he said, O king, I am very thankful before God this day that I am yet alive. That's an understatement, right? And am permitted to speak, and I will endeavor to speak with boldness, for I am assured that if ye had known me, ye would not have suffered that I should be war that I should have worn these bands, for I am Ammon, and am a descendant of Zarahemla, and have come up out of the land of Zarahemla. The word Zarahemla actually means red city. To inquire concerning our brethren whom Zenith brought up out of that land. And now it came to pass that after Limhi had heard the words of Ammon, he was exceedingly glad and said, Now I know of a surety that my brethren who were in the land of Zarahemla are yet alive. It is possible that since those in Zarahemla had not communicated with Limhi's people, they may have thought that the people of Zarahemla had all died. Mosiah 21 indicates that the people thought that the people of Zarahemla had been destroyed. Continuing verse 14, And now I will rejoice, and on the morrow I will cause that my people shall rejoice also. For behold, we are in bondage to the Lamanites, and are taxed with a tax which is grievous to be borne. And now, behold, our brethren will deliver us out of our bondage, or out of the hands of the Lamanites. And we will be their slaves, for it is better that we be slaves to the Nephites than to pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites. This might be an exaggeration. And now King Limhi commanded his guards that they should no more bind Ammon nor his brethren, but cause that they should go to the hill which was north of Shalom and bring their brethren into the city, that thereby they might eat and drink and rest themselves from the labors of their journey, for they had suffered many things. They had suffered hunger, thirst, and fatigue. 
And now it came to pass on the morrow that King Limhi sent a proclamation among all his people, that thereby they might gather together themselves together to the temple. The temple is at the heart of true worship among the Lord's people throughout history. To hear the words which he should speak unto them. And it came to pass that when they had gathered themselves together, that he spake unto them in this wise, saying, O ye O ye my people, lift up your heads and be comforted, for behold, the time is at hand, or is not far distant, when we shall no longer be in subjection to our enemies, notwithstanding our many strugglings, which have been in vain, yet I trust there remaineth an effectual struggle to be made. Therefore lift up your heads, Limhi is telling his people to have faith, and rejoice and put your trust in God, and in that God who was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And also that God who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt and caused that they should walk through the Red Sea on dry ground and fed them with manna that they might not perish in the wilderness. And many more things did he do for them. He's giving a testimony here to the truth of the Old Testament. And again, that same God has brought our, our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem and has kept the pres and preserved his people even until now. And behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that he has brought us into bondage. The fact that Limhi is recounting two exoduses supposes that Limhi is expecting that their deliverance will be in an exodus, not in overthrowing their captors. Ammon's arrival gives the people of Limhi a place to go. One reason that they did not leave sooner may be that, they, that the area was populated and their arrival in a populated area would, would have been unwelcomed. It's interesting, too, that this is very similar to the, to the Israelites being freed from Egypt, that Moses came to them first and then they were... Uh, then they were led out, and Ammon and his brethren are coming, and they're going to lead them out the same way. Verse 21, And ye all are witnesses this day, that Zenith, who was made king over this people, he being overzealous to inherit the land of his fathers. Elder McConkie says that sometimes we have to be careful with fanaticism. He says, fanaticism, fanaticism it's easy for me to say, Fanaticism is the devil's substitute for and perversion of true zeal. It is exhibited in wildly extravagant and overzealous views and acts. It is based either on unreasoning, unreasoning devotion to a cause, a devotion which closes the door to investigation and dispassionate study, or on an overemphasis of some particular doctrine or practice, an emphasis which twists the truth as a whole out of perspective. Through the ages, religious fanatics have fought and died on the field of battle in false causes. In the church, there are those who become fanatics. Stable and sound persons are never fanatics. They do not write gospel hobbies. And in talking about that, he was talking also about those that are Book of Mormon, I mean, the Word of Wisdom faddists and other types of things that they just glom onto and, and uh, preach to everybody else. Therefore, being deceived by the cunning and craftiness of King Laman, who have entered into a treaty with King Zenith, and having yielded up into his hands the possessions of a part of the land, or even the city of Lehi-Nephi and the city of Shalom, and the land round about, using the words overzealous and deceived were not how Zenith described his going to the land of Nephi. And all this he did for the sole purpose of bringing his, this people into subjection or into bondage. And behold, we at this time do pay tribute to the king of the Lamanites, to the amount of one half of our corn and our barley and even all our grain of every kind, and one half of the increase of our flocks and our herds, and even one half of all we possess, and all we have or possess, the king of the Lamanites doth exact of us or our lives. And now, is not this grievous to be borne, and is not this our affliction great? Now behold, how great reason we have to mourn. Yea, I say unto you, 
Great are the reasons which we have to mourn. For behold, how many of our brethren have been slain, and their blood has been spilled in vain, and all because of iniquity. For if this people had not fallen into transgression, the Lord would not have suffered that this great evil should come upon them. But behold, they would not hearken unto his words. But there arose contentions among them, even so much that they did shed blood among themselves. And a prophet, meaning Abinadi, of the Lord, have they slain a chosen man of God who told them of their wickedness and abominations and prophesied of many things which are to come, yea, even the coming of Christ. And because he said unto them that Christ was the God, the Father of all things, and said that he should take upon him the image of man, and it should be the image after which man was created in the beginning, or in other words, he said that man was created after the image of God, and that God should come down among the children of men and take upon him flesh and blood and go forth upon the face of the earth, in other words, the Book of Mormon here is plainly teaching that Jesus Christ was the God of the Old Testament. And now because he said this, they did put him to death. And many more things did they do, which brought down the wrath of God upon them. Therefore, who wondereth that they are in bondage and that they are smitten with sore afflictions? For behold, the Lord, said, the Lord hath said, I will not succor my people in the day of their transgression, but I will hedge up their ways that they prosper not, and their doings shall be as a stumbling block before them. So uh, this, this quote that the Lord said here um, is probably on the brass plates or the large plates of Nephi. Verse 30, and again he saith, if my people shall sow filthiness, they shall reap the chaff thereof. The law of the harvest in the whirlwind and the effect thereof is poison. The chaff that gets into your lungs will kill you. And again he saith, if my people shall sow filthiness, they shall reap the east wind. Now in Israel, the east wind is a wind that blows from the desert and it's a very hot a hot wind and it destroys a lot of things that go in its way um, this is from the doctrinal commentary it says the character of the directional winds was so consistent varying not in nature but only in degree throughout the seasons that they came to be viewed as a messenger as messengers from God the north wind is cold the west wind coming from the Mediterranean Sea is moist the south warm and the east which crosses the sandy wastes of the Arabian desert before reaching Palestine can be violent and destructive. Continuing verse 31, which bringeth immediate destruction. Since this quote is not found in the Old Testament, it probably came from the brass plates. Reference to the east wind was an old world reference giving support to the idea that this was a quote from the brass plates. This is most likely a quote from Zenic because it is similar to a quote found in Alma 31.16. For behold, he said, Thou art angry, O Lord, with this people, because they will not understand thy mercies, which thou hast bestowed upon them because of thy son. Verse 32, And now, behold, the promise of the Lord is fulfilled, and ye are smitten and afflicted. But if ye will, re if ye will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, and put your trust in him, and serve him with all diligence of mind, if ye do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. One of the main messages of the Book of Mormon is deliverance. There are hundreds of stories or hundreds of quotes in here in the Book of Mormon about being delivered, whether it's from sin or whether it's from captivity or bondage. Uh, there's lots of uh, stories and references in the Book of Mormon to, to being delivered. The ultimate delivery is the one from Jesus Christ from sin and death. I bear testimony of the truth of these things, that as we study the, the words of the Book of Mormon, that it will benefit our lives and and as we uh, see the differences here between King Benjamin and King Noah, uh, we'll see the stark difference between a, a righteous ruler and a wicked one. I bear testimony of the truth of these things, that this is translated material, as we mentioned, uh, that the word Mosiah uh, probably has reference to the Messiah, and I, which is a Hebrew word. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time. If you like this podcast, you can share it and, and uh, whatever else you do. Thanks. Bye.